Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, May 11th. Before I run through all of the news from another weekend in the professional tennis world, as well as kick off next gen week here on the Mini Break podcast, I want to let all of you listeners know that these podcasts are made possible with the support of our friends at Midwest Sports. And for more than 20 years, Midwest Sports has served as one of the world's premier tennis equipment suppliers. They're one of the top online tennis stores with a tennis warehouse of 40,000 square feet, which we affectionately refer to as the candy land of the tennis community. And they offer a comprehensive selection of fast shipping tennis supplies from that candy land that few retailers can match. They have one of the largest in-stock inventories of tennis equipment online with tens of thousands of products available for shipping from their automated warehouse directly to your home. They value innovation and have personally tailored their products to highlight your skills on the court. More importantly, maybe you don't know exactly what your game needs to thrive. The good news is their well-trained staff are intimately familiar with tennis equipment and can help you find that perfect racket, that perfect shoe, that perfect pair of tennis clothing that is sure to put your game ahead of the competition. Their selections of equipment are consistently first to market, and they pride themselves in stocking their tennis warehouse with the newest products at the lowest prices. So I know what you might be thinking. Maybe you live in one of those communities where it is slowly being possible to play tennis once again. Well, maybe you don't have the strings, the racket, the shoes you need to bring out the best in your game right now. Maybe you want a new shirt to celebrate the occasion. What you can do is go to MidwestSports.com. You're going to find the gear you want. You're going to find exactly what you need and more. And you're going to order yourself up some stuff now to save a little bit of money in your pocket. Although, you know, comparatively, you're already getting the best deal because it is MidwestSports.com, you're going to want to use our promo code CR15 as well, and you will get 15% off your order on all orders exceeding $75. You'll also get free two-day shipping on that order and the trifecta to make it the perfect deal. Free can of Wilson tennis balls on top of it all. So free can of balls, you're getting 15% off, you're getting free two-day shipping. That's a win-win-win in our book. So go to MidwestSports.com, use that promo code CR15. It is your one-stop shop for all of your tennis needs. They are so supportive of us here at the Mini Break Podcast. The least we can do is ask you to go support them as well. One other quick note. Some of you listeners may have noticed our Great Shot Podcast is now brought to you by our friends at DraftKings. Quick note from DraftKings. 
In, con- in conjunction with their updated site-wide offer, DraftKings is offering a free-to-bet day on May 14th. That means there will be a free $5.14 bet for all users, both new and existing, that visit DK Sportsbook in active sportsbook states. Please find creative supporting free-to-bet day information on their website, DraftKings.com. Go check that out if you want to use our promo code DKNG.co slash rackets. Go give that a look. I know Again, we're all in quarantine now. It's like week 10, week 11, and we're looking for things to do. Well, certainly DraftKings can spice up your life, so be sure to go check them out now. All right, with that being said, let's get into the news because, you know, today is a two-podcast day here at Cracked Rackets, as it so frequently is, thanks to the hard, dedicated work of our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff. But I actually had the chance to have a fascinating conversation this weekend with former ATP CEO Mark Miles about just the state of the tour and, you know, how an international sport like tennis responds to a global pandemic like the coronavirus. Is it more susceptible to, you know, negative uh, reaction just given the international negative reaction is the wrong negative uh, I suppose implications uh, given the international nature of the sport and with all of the discussions right now about merger talks between the ATP and WTA tours and what are the financial state of the tours given something like this given there are no matches what's the feasibility of playing matches without uh, having any people in the crowd and is that a financially you know feasible thing for tournaments to execute are they still going to lose too much money to the point where it's not even worth having the event. We discuss all of that and more. He, of course, talks about his time. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Mark was CEO from about 1990 to the end, I believe, of 2005. And I mean, you want to learn about the nuances of the organizational structure of the ATP. There's no one you can talk to that's better then the former chief executive officer, the former CEO, of course. So it's a really great conversation. And, you know, so much of the news I'm going to discuss today is entangled uh, with the conversation I had with Mark. So I do think that's a perfect pairing to this podcast. If this podcast is the fine red wine, I would say that podcast is the juicy tenderloin you'd pair with it uh, because it gets meaty. It gets great. I think all of you should go check that out. But just to follow up on a couple of items from that podcast as we learned more information since uh, that since I've had that conversation uh, we learned through the rumor mill again various reporters have put out that the ATP is considering another postponement to their season and as is the WTA and I don't think that's a surprise to anyone the current ATP WTA uh, deadline or extension is through there will be no play through July 12th Uh, but as of right now they say May 15th which is later this week is the deadline to make a decision for the post Wimbledon tournaments in July is what the ATP chairman Andrea Gaudenzi told Reuters uh, I believe on Saturday June 1st is the deadline for the tournaments in August as well. So a couple of deadlines coming up in the next, you know, what, 17, 18, 19 days. So be on the lookout for that. And, you know, we continue to see a scramble for those tournaments who are are keen on playing their events this year, the ones that where it is financially viable for them to play the event, even if there are limited or no fans, no gate receipts. And those are the ones with the biggest TV deals. And obviously that means the majors, the masters, the 
Premier Mandatory, the year-end finals events. And, you know, no tournament has done more jockeying to try and ensure its place on the calendar than the French Open, which continues to make moves. And you'll remember on a mini break, uh, I don't even know how many weeks ago, I want to say two, about uh, we discussed the French sports minister came out and said, we're not going to do the French Open, we're not going to do the Tour de France unless there are sports there. Well, that that comment has quickly been taken back, you know, or walked back, I should say, further and further to the point where, you know, Roland Garros without spectators is a real possibility at this point, and you've seen it from multiple sources. The article I am quoting right now is the one I saw from SI.com, which I believe they got circa the Associated Press, uh, which has Bernard Giodicelli telling the French newspaper that organizers are considering that it might need to go, the French Open might need to go without fans present, uh, and that it may even be pushed back a week further from the September 27th date that it is at right now from uh, Gio DiCelli, and I apologize if I butchered his last name, but, quote, organizing it without fans will uh, would allow a part of the economy to keep turning, like television rights and partnerships. It's not to be overlooked. We're not ruling any option out. He, he conceded the lack of visibility when hosting a tournament without fans is a concern, but, you know, for those of you who haven't heard the French Tennis Federation, and we covered this last week, they're refunding tickets purchases for the original dates, but I talk about this on a pod that'll come out later this week that I did with Brett McCormick of the Sports Business Journal. For the majors, it's absolutely a possibility, and now, you know, safe safety and health procedure-wise, it's less of a possibility. I'm talking strictly on finances. But I, I looked at the U.S. Open numbers, and, and you're going to hear these numbers a couple of times over the next course of podcasts, but they made $400 million of the $488 million brought in revenue by the USTA, I think it was in 2018. Of that $400 million, it was about a third, a little less than a third of that revenue uh, they earn through ticket receipts, gate, you know, concessions, all the parking, all the various uh, individual charges that you have to go attend and the money you make for a Grand Slam in person. But, you know, TV rights and everything else, 66%, two-thirds of the pot is still available to those slams. And two-thirds of $400 million is a lot of money, enough money to where, you know, the wheels keep turning to where you can continue to do things and plan for the future, even though there's so much uncertainty surrounding that future. And, I mean, these slams are the lifebloods of the four biggest tennis federations across the globe, the LTA, the FTF, the USTA, and uh the Australian tennis, whatever it's called. I apologize. I don't know the exact acronym for it, but you know, those are the big boys. And without the slams, they take a hit and they are going to do everything in their, their possibility uh, to ensure, especially these last three slams. Wimbledon's out, uh, but we've already seen they've got the insurance policy to cover it, so they're fine. But these last two, the French Open, the U.S. Open, they're going to try and stay on the board as long as they can. And, you know, that just continues to be confirmed more and more with all of the storylines we continue to hear. We did learn that Tennis Canada officially cancels all tournaments up until August 31st. First, with the exception being the Rogers Cup in Toronto, which is scheduled to start August 10th, of course. And this is from at Galoot, Michael Gallo, who you guys, I'm sure if you're a tennis Twitter person, you know his work as a TSN tennis contributor, uh, tennis content manager for uh, TSN Tennis and TSN Sports. Uh, but of course, right now, it's unlikely that we would see the Rogers Cup at August, on August 10th, but they just want to keep that or, door open as long as they can. But yeah, again, a lot of moving pieces right now on the tour. And of course, another 
uh, significant thing going on right now is we continue to learn more and more about the player relief fund being put together by the ATP, the WTA, the ITF, the various grand slams of all those cooperating partners able to get together. You know, it was a struggle, but they did get together to supply, uh, to be able to start supplying some relief funding to all of these players impacted. Now, again, we've discussed the player relief package in depth on this podcast, and I discuss it with Mark Miles as well, and, you know, I discuss it with Brett as well, so I don't need to go too into those details again today. Be on the lookout for all of those podcasts. But, you know, roughly $6 million to roughly 800 players is the figures we're working with. And there have been players who have come out, most notably, you know, Dominic Team took a lot of heat for his comments. Um, And in fact, uh, we got the response from Ines Ibu, who is an Algerian tennis player, uh, not, you know, someone who is high up in the rankings. She's currently ranked number 620, uh, who this weekend took it upon herself, and maybe it wasn't this weekend, but it was released this weekend, to uh, respond to Dominic team to offer her life er, life story is the wrong way of phrasing to offer her story in tennis and how you know it's different between a guy who's Dominic team who's a critically acclaimed junior as well as being you know he lost in that French Open junior final to Bjorn for Tangelo but I believe he swept uh, Eddie Her and the Orange Bowl back to back when he was I want to say it was like 2012 or 2013 I can't even remember the Colette Lewis highlights but I remember seeing him play I remember matches against Sebastian Offner that's getting off point um the point is in his uh Ibu uh, takes the time to respond to Dominic Team and offer her perspective, show what it's like when you're not one of those top juniors who has an entire tennis federation backing you, who has sponsorships available to you from the onstart, who never has to truly worry about your own financial backing and just getting through the day-to-day, week-to-week, you know, month-to-month grind and travel expenses and figuring out where it's feasible for you to go chase points and financially can you afford to go to that place to chase points and checking out all all of the visas, making sure everything's executed and, you know, not having a built-in coaching structure and struggling to even find good courts to hit on, struggling to find good places to train. She offers such a candid perspective and, you know, I I, I can't help but connect to it and it, it, it brings emotion to, you know, to any of the view, anyone who views it, there's no way to not, you know, feel compassionate and feel strongly for the story. And in fact, Westoff, if you could, let's roll a portion of that video that she posted now. Dear Dominic, after reading your last statement, I was wondering what would have been my career and therefore my life if I was in your shoes. Yes. What is it like to be Dominic team? So I started picturing myself what it was like to have parents coaching tennis when I touched a tennis racket for the first time at age six and instantly fell in love with it. As I grew up in the outskirts of Algiers in a very modest family with parents who had nothing to do with tennis. And look, we've already seen the entire tennis community come out and offer the support and speak to how powerful Ibu's message was. You know, people like Nick Kyrgios, Venus Williams immediately responding on Instagram and, you know, so many various players, the list goes on and on, have commented on how powerful her message was. And, you know, it's interesting because 
uh, I think Jose Morgado, who pointed this out on Twitter, uh, it was something like Dominic Team's mom ended up following Ibu on Twitter, and to his point, Dominic Team and his family may directly help you know those sorts of players because that's Dominic Team Dominic Team's point, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't spoken clearly. It was not beautifully uh, uh, you know it wasn't the most eloquent delivery of his message, uh, but. That's what he wanted to say. He wants to help the up-and-coming players who really need the money. He wants to help decide who receives the help. Certainly, he would agree a player like Ibu, who's had to struggle her entire career uh, to put herself in a position to succeed, to find the sort of training, to get to the sort of tournaments you need to become a top-ranked player, um, but that he just doesn't want the money going out arbitrarily. And again, it was a poorly delivered message, as I mentioned, for Dominic Team. And, you know, I think his greater point of worrying about, you know, who gets the money is the system going to be abused who's arbitrating who gets what and what is it the players deciding is it the organizations the ATP the WTA the ITF are they the ones deciding which players get the most help and how do we ensure that that sort of help is given in a fair way ensure that it's not again abused um, but it, it wasn't the best eloquated point and a lot of people have dunked on him for that take since and you know again does he deserve criticism I think so but he's tried to come out and clarify his position and he also does deserve credit for doing the various things he had done and we've listed them on past podcasts to help his immediate community uh you know get through uh this global pandemic but certainly this was a powerful message and i think all of you guys should go check out ibu's larger video clip it's about a nine and a half minute clip and it's it, it's so powerful i think it's a message everyone uh should see so be sure to go check that out you can find that on my twitter account retweeted you can find it in various places just search out i n e s i b b o u uh, that's her name response to uh you know dominic team and you will be able to find that all right let's move on because again there are a couple of other things that I want to kick off next gen week. Uh, let's start with, again, just a, one last piece of serious news. You know, uh, Sergei Stokowski and uh, I believe uh, the WTA player council member Krunich uh, in an interview with the Ukrainian tennis talked about what a possible merger looks like. Stokowski says the merger will benefit, uh, you know, the WTA and tennis as a whole, but fears that the prize money may be frozen to ensure more equal distribution. And he thinks if there's more prize money available, the prize money should grow accordingly. And, you know, again, there are, uh, these are just some of the nuances that we get into in depth with Mark Miles. So basically here, you know, Krunich says WTA, WTA tournaments will lose a lot of sponsors after the corona crisis. But she says, you know, imagine it's going to be much easier if the tour ends up being unified. And she says, I don't know what the tour will look like. Uh, we already had problems before the virus. That's why I think it's possible in our interest to start the process of merger as soon as possible, especially while it's still a hot topic. So again, merger talks rocking and rolling right now. That is very clear. What also was very clear is it was delightful to have actual live tennis to discuss once again. And we've seen these events emerge slowly but surely across the globe. You know, first it was video game tennis. This weekend, it was actual results. And, you know, yes, there have been various exhibitions. I know there's some in Russia. There's a couple, I think, one at Saddlebrook as well. Um, but we got to see it on Tennis Channel, and that was certainly a platform that hasn't seen live tennis in quite a bit of time. And as 
part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. It was obviously delightful for us here at Cracked Rackets to see uh, the UTR uh, series, pro match series, take place on Tennis Channel. That was Hubie Hercatch, Tommy Paul, Riley Opelka, Miomir Kasmenovic taking off. It was the fast four format that they use at the next-gen ATP Finals. That means no ad scoring. That means they're playing sets to four, a uh, tiebreaker at three all. And, you know, it was quick. It's certainly not the Australian Open. It's not like you're getting a layoff and then you're going into a major. This was a slow rollback. And was the level of tennis incredible? No. You know, the intensity, no one out there was trying to hurt themselves. But it was a high-level event. And it was just great to see live action again. It was great to see Riley Opelka continue to show his form, particularly because, you know, in Kasmenovic, in Hercatch, and Tommy Paul, those are guys who are physically going to be able to wear him down, going to, you know, in theory could grind him down, force him, extend him to the outer thirds, but they were unable to do that. Riley served big all weekend long. He played big on the no-add points. He would have been a fantastic college tennis player, obviously, uh, but he ended up winning this event, knocking off Kasmenovic 4-3, 2-4, 4-2 in the final, so congratulations to Riley, and congratulations to Hubie Hercatch, who executed maybe the shot of the year, especially if we don't get any more tennis, but, you know, some Djokovic hit some crazy shots. That Spider-Man meme, I think, will be the graphic of the 2020 season if we don't get any playback. But Hubie Hercatch uh, executing a tweener on Tennis Channel, hey, great shot to him because the pressure was high and he came through in the big moment. Also want to give a shout-out to the Yimmers uh, who played an exhibition event in Sweden. And I know our friend Alex Theodorus, and I probably butchered that pronunciation, I apologize, but helped put on the event. And it was a rousing success. You know, no fans there, but the Yimmers put on a show. Fantastic tennis players, candid, fun-to-watch brothers going head-to-head against one another. Elias, the older brother, they're taking the match 6367 10-8 in a third set breaker if you are asking me if beforehand they go out to the match and they say hey you know Mikhail you're not beating me I'm the older brother I get to win this there are no ramifications so let it go uh and Mikhail being like yeah sure that's fine I would believe that I just want to say because it was that sort of friendliness and I feel like he was like you know what older brother I'm gonna let you have this one I'm in the top 70 right now I've had a fantastic 2020 season you take this and remind everyone that we're both outstanding prospects because they both really are Uh, and that was a really fun match to watch there's also going to be another pro event in Sweden I believe it is starts May 22nd there are going to be I believe right now uh, eight men and or eight men currently announced seven women currently announced in the field players like Marcus Erickson and Katja Henneman and Alexandra Viktorovich, who maybe some of you haven't heard much of, but it's going to be an exciting, exciting event. Just the more tennis, the better, right? That's what we're looking for. And in fact, Tumaini Cario, our friend writer at The Guardian, a guy we've had on this podcast a bunch of different times, uh, announced that, you know, or I should say, got via Philip Krajinovich, uh, that uh, Janko Tipserovich's academy is planning to hold an exhibition next month in Belgrade. So that's just another thing for us to look forward to. And he also wrote this weekend about tennis making this tentative return in uh, these various exhibition forms. And the headline of the article, Tennis Makes Tentative Resumption with some exhibition stuff. I think it nailed it right on the head because this isn't the tennis we're sort of seeing or we're used to seeing, but it's the sort of tennis we might have to get used to. And it's certainly, you know, it, 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 
it's an interesting experiment is how I would say it and Tumani gets into all of that you can find the piece again on his Twitter feed on theguardian.com just go to tennis makes tentative resumption with some exhibition stuff you know when he writes something I'm always paying attention so be sure to go check that out I would say uh, you know a couple of other things if you want to know some good reads from the weekend the all about tennis blog wrote two great pieces I should say last word, Tennis wrote two great pieces. One was on the ATP Rising Stars Hurt by the Pandemic, and it talks about Brandon Nakashima, Jeffrey Blanceno, uh, Arthur Rinderneck, Yuri Rodionov. It's a really well-written piece. I think all of you will enjoy it, so be sure to go check that out. You can also check out Jake Davies' piece on lastwordtennis.com on Richard Gasquet and what could have been. And look, Richard Gasquet is one of those elusive talents, right? He doesn't get discussed with probably in the same breath as a Burdich, as a Ferrer. Uh, but at his best, he's certainly that quality of player. Now, you talk about that French generation in general, Tsonga, Monfils, Gasquet, uh, and Simone, and we will do this certainly on a mini-break podcast for as long as we're in quarantine because this topic screams mini-break. Uh, but who is the best of the Frenchmen? It's tough to say, but, you know, Jake, t- excellent case for Richard Gasquet in his piece, so be sure to go check that out. Two fun ones as well, real quick. Uh, if you l- want to hear, and this isn't fun, I suppose, but Novak Djokovic getting himself in more trouble, peddling some, we'll say, curious uh, products to uh, some fans. Uh, You know, no science behind it. One of those garbage is the wrong word. Think what you want to think about it, but I view it as garbage. Like, you drink this and it makes you healthy sort of product. And, you know, that on top of the no vaccinations. Not a great couple of weeks for Novak Djokovic, at least PR-wise. And Jerry Nathan wrote about the world's number one player wants to sell you nootropic garbage at racketmag.com. Jerry, such a fantastic writer. I think all of you will enjoy that. Uh, There's also a really fun piece on ESPN.com on John McEnroe, who's narrated Netflix's Never Have I Ever uh, series. Now, I haven't watched it, but I've heard it's quite popular. And again, tennis in pop culture. We need to get it to be someone who's not John McEnroe because he's been a pop culture figure forever. We need to find his replacement or the heir apparent, I suppose, not replacement. And I don't know if we have yet, Uh, but that's a really fun piece. And it shows, again, tennis celebrity can transcend larger culture, not just tennis culture. So that's all of the news from the weekend. And again, it was a busy weekend of news, but want to do one more thing before we end today's podcast, because, you know, again, we're in quarantine. We've all had some time to reflect, to look back at maybe some of tennis's past matches, which we've done on CR Classics, or talk about some of our favorite players, their best stretches, examine them maybe with some context of how their primes compare to other players' primes. We've certainly done a bunch of that here on the Mini Break Podcast. But we want to dedicate this week to one of our favorite topics, the next-gen players, because we have seen so many of them have success on the tour. We want to talk about them as a cohort, some of the best, some of the you know some of their finest moments, some of the things they need to improve on moving forward. In a, just a week-long series, we are calling Next Gen Week here on the Mini Break Podcast. I will introduce to you that series, what to look, what it's going to look like, what you all can expect right after this commercial break. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. 
Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Welcome back to the mini break. Alex Gruskin here piloting the ship solo on a Monday. We just ran through all of the news from the weekend in the professional tennis world. And of course, if you want to hear more about the current state of merger talks between the ATP and WTA, some context behind that, as well as just some broader context of the ATP's organizational structure, excuse me, uh, be sure to go check out the Great Shot podcast we released today. Former ATP CEO Mark Miles and myself chatting for about 40 minutes on all of the various nuances that goes into governing professional tennis. But as I mentioned before the break, we want to dedicate this week here on the mini break to one of our favorite topics uh, when regarding the game of tennis, one that obviously attracts someone of my generation so, uh, to the sport, and that's the next-gen players and you know the transition stage we seem to be in on both the ATP and WTA tours in terms of younger players you know, hitting, this, uh, hitting the big stages and shining brightly, making breakthroughs. On the women's side, it's been far more pronounced than on the men's, but today I'm going to focus on the ATP next-gen men, and usual rules apply, folks. The next-gen campaign really began with the 1996s. They were the first group uh, who got to play the next-gen ATP finals. I think the inaugural event was in 2017, which happened to also be the year that I recorded my first podcast, so again, you see that sort of overlap. The next-gen guys are, I feel like that's my generation of tennis players. It's the first one I've gotten to see their complete uh, careers from start to finish, so many of the guys I can remember watching on livestream.com backslash ATP compete on the Challenger Tour, the Americans in particular. Am I proud of it? I mean, I don't think this is going to surprise anyone. Was it a little bit weird? Maybe. Does it speak about some of the motives in my life? Maybe. But, you know, there are American players who I was, when I would go watch Kalamazoo, and again, that's the motives where I was going to say you're going to question, but when I'd go watch Kalamazoo when I was 17, 18 years old, I think I even went when I was 19, and that's because Fliegner was playing, and I'm always going to go support my boy Fliegner when he plays. Um, but, you know, these are guys I saw when they were 15, 16, 17 playing for Stefan Kozlov. He probably played his first national event and was on YouTube when he was nine. And so to see this generation of players, of course, the Zverevs, the Tsitsipas as well, the Medvedevs, who I remember the pot at the beginning of 2018. Rothman doesn't give me credit for much, but he said, look, you were on the Medvedev bandwagon before a lot of people, Alex. You've been talking about him forever. You know, all of these guys have now hit their breakthroughs. And I just kind of want to talk about the state of this next-gen group because, you know, again, I qualify a next-gen as someone born born, you know, my year or later. Sometimes there are exceptions. Nick Kyrgios is like six months older than me, but we often include him in this next-gen cohort. But the deal is usually, especially right now, and, you know, as this generation gets, you know, once the 96s turn 25, uh, they're going to disqualify as well because the rule will always be under the age of 25. And I wanted to just look at some stats and put, again, in some context for this generation on today's kickoff podcast of Next Gen Week because later on in the week, we're going to talk about, I, I know Max Rothman and I are planning to do our top five next-gen performances uh, of all of the next-gen guys in their careers, I know, with Carew and Austin next week, or next week, with Carew and Austin uh, on tomorrow's podcast. Oh, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure which one of them yet, but the My Tennis HQ guys, we're going to talk about which next-gen guys we think can win slams during their career and what they need to improve to get their games to that point 
Uh, but today, I just want to give, again, a state of the generation. And there are so many talented players in this generation. But to judge them as a cohort, I think it's best to look at the rankings and best to look at how this generation has moved up and how much more of the top 10, top 30, top 50, top 100, top 200 that they occupy in the ATP standings because that shows how that generation has solidified themselves at the top of the game, right? It's always going to be difficult to become a top top 10 player because newsflash there are only 10 top 10 players at any given point in the world and given the generation this generation had to break through in you always knew outside of 2016 and you know 2017 when they were injured that the three of Nadal, Federer, Djokovic were going to be three of the top 10 spots so you're competing for seven now and you're competing amongst people who are over the age of 30 you're competing against people who are in the primes of their career that 25 to 30 range and you know again so much has been made of well given the physicality given the or the physicality of the sport given the extension of physical primes just uh, given the advances in modern medicine and the places we have gone with our athletic training and what we're capable of now in 2020 you know people in the top 100 has, the top 100 in average age has generally gotten older and you know there are a couple of reasons why again the advancements in modern technology the way athletes have been training now for the past 15 years so that they're constantly in shape they're not just working to get in their best shape for their biggest moments uh, that has cer- certainly been part of the reason these primes have been extended and you know we don't have to get into that right now but there's also the fact that the generation above this current next gen cohort that Milos, Dimitrov, Jack Sock, Bernard Tomic uh, kind of ugh, generation just never really hit their stride and Dominic team is probably a little too young for that group but too old for this group he's that in between and he is finally starting to hit his stride but you know Rayonich had a really good year Urs had some really good years. Dimitrov's had some really great moments. Uh, Nishikori's had some great moments. But that group never took control of the ATP. They never surpassed the generation of Djokovic, of Murray, of you know even Federer, of course, and Nadal, uh, who have always sat on the top of the game. But this next-gen group has slowly and consistently made their way up or have slowly and consistently ascended their way up the rankings, and it's that the group has solidified itself. That we're si- finally starting to see which of the names of the because you know, sixteen to eighteen, you're trying to project which players are going to be the top of their cohort. Yes, there are a lot of players who stand out, and certainly you know there was a stat I read last week that I saw from Oleg S uh, at Anna K underscore Forever, who said there are currently twenty six, uh, one hundred twenty six currently ranked players that have reached the top fifty in the ATP rankings of those 126 you know I think 120 broke the top 200 at age 22 or younger only six did it older than that in terms of breaking the top 100 99 of that 126 broke the top 100 by the time they were age 22 20 of them did it between ages 23 and 25 as well so what that stat tells me and again to get back to why the rankings tell this story is if by the time you're 24 
if by the time you're 25, you haven't cracked the top 200, you haven't cracked the top 100 even, we probably know what your ceiling is going to be as a player. And of course, there are exceptions. Guys like Steve Johnson, guys like Kevin Anderson, who worked their way up the rankings a little later because they spent some time in college. And guess what? They weren't even, you know, Cam Norrie, who I, I was looking at the rankings going back 2017, he's not in the top 200. 2018, he was at like 101 and he was 22 years old. And guess what? That's because he finally got to play a full year of of professional tennis events, and that certainly did a number for his ranking. Um, but generally, the rankings are the best approximation of what what your upside is as a player. If you haven't broken through at multiple challengers, if you're you know constantly struggling struggling at the challenger court in challenger quarterfinals or round of 16s, or maybe you make that occasional semifinal, but it's only one every four months. Well, there's going to be a reason that you're not cracking the top 150 in the rankings and. Again, just to sort of set the tone for where we're at with this next-gen cohort, I went back for today's podcast, and I looked at the rankings over the past five years for players under the age of 25 and how the numbers have changed. And, you know, are there more players under the 25 in certain ranking groups than there were before? Are there less? Where are, where are the biggest strides coming at? What levels is it? And again, the four levels I used, I, I went by top 10, or five levels, I should say, top 10. Because if you're a top 10 player, it means you are succeeding at the Masters event, at least one or two of them a year. You're making a second week quarterfinal, you know, semifinal maybe even run you're doing well at the grand slams you're winning the occasional 250 event if you have to play it you know all of the rankings you know to to reach a top 10 ranking requires a certain level of accomplishment so I think that's one barometer I also went with top 30 which is all the same but are you seated at slams top 50 means you're getting into all of the masters events you don't have to play qualifying anymore really at any event throughout the season top 100 you're getting into main draws and top 200 means you're succeeding at the challenger level. You're playing qualies at Grand Slams. You're either on the precipice, maybe you're on the rise of breaking through into that top 100 and you just haven't played enough events or you're a little bit young or, you know, you sort of plateaued in that top 200, which means you're too good for the future circuit at this point, but still trying to hit your stride at the challenger level. You've probably won a challenger event or made a final to get into the top 200, but maybe you can't do it consistently week in, week out yet and your your runs are having you know, once a month, which is still really good, uh, but that's not going to get you into the top 100. Once a month isn't going to cut it. Um, although maybe it would, if you want a challenger a month, that would cut it. But you know, that's not what I'm. You guys get the point I'm trying to make. So let's look at where this next gen cohort has advanced, and you know, let's start at the top because I, I think it's accentuated most uh, as you get further and further down the rankings how this next gen crew has rise. But let's start at the top and just show again. Do we have our standouts from this next cohort of players? Have we found our heir appearance at the top of the game? I think we can finally say that answer is yes. And for so long it was, well, are Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal that good, that much better than anyone? Or is the generation of Dimitrov, Rayonich, Nishikori just not that good? And obviously the answer lies somewhere in between. It's not that they're not that good. It's somewhere where, yeah, they're all very good, but they never ascended to that peak level that you needed to beat uh, Novak Djokovic in this time to become a Grand Slam champion. And, you know, of players 25 and under, and again, that's the category for all of these rankings, there were zero 25 and under players in the top 10 at the start of 2016. Zero. There was one 
in 2017. It was Dominic Team, who was 23 years old. There were, you know, so again, the, those first two years, they were grim, and we all remember 2014 through 2017. You know, yes, Stan was able to break through, but there's a reason the big four, you know, big three, big four, and then there's a reason the big three we'll just go with for now, and we don't have to litigate that again. But there's a reason they're at the top of the game. And, you know, one, it's because they're the greatest ever play, but two, it's because there wasn't a generation to challenge them on the rise. There really weren't that many great players uh, who could push them at the Grand Slams. And then you get to 2018, and now you see that, you know, that generation that's a little bit younger than Dominic team, that's really the next gen guys we refer to now, start to break through. And you see, you know, Alex Virev at the end of 2018, he's number five. Dominic team, number seven. A guy who's Dominic team's age, maybe a year younger, Luca Pui at number 10. So you see the team generation starting to hit its prime, as well as the younger generation starting to ascend. Now, 2019, Dominic Team ages out. If you would have included him, you'd have had three top 10 players, but it's Zverev and Tsitsipas are the only guys 25 and under, uh, so that's two total. And then you get to this year, and you know you had learned clearly, Alex Zverev is a guy who's going to stay. He solidified his style, himself at the top of the game, and we don't have to litigate right now how you think about him compared to others, or I guess I'm not going to litigate that right now because I'll be doing that later in the week, but Alex Zverev proved you know, he's been top, uh, top 10 now for the past uh, three seasons, I mean, he's a top 10 guy. He's a player in this generation. He'll be one of the guys to beat. CT Pass did it in 2019. As of right now, he is also in the top 10. He's at number six. So that's two guys who have solidified themselves, I would say, as top 10 players. To be top 10 back-to-back years this early in their careers, I think we can give them the benefit of the doubt. You also see two other guys in Matteo Berrettini and Daniil Medvedev. Now, do I think Berrettini has the staying power of a Zverev or a Tsitsipas? I don't know yet. You know, he was so exceptional in 2019. I think he won like three or four titles, uh, made fourth round or better. You know, that semifinal at the U.S. Open, but fourth round or better at a couple of grand slams. Um, You know, everything broke right for him in 2019. And that serve, that forehand, is going to win him a lot of matches in his career. Uh, But how much of that was just confidence, him you know, hitting big, playing big, playing loosely because of all of the success he was having versus sustainability. I don't know if he's a sustainable top 10 guy. I do know he will have further top 10 runs in his future. He's definitely not a Jack Sock one-year wonder. Not that Jack Sock's a one-year wonder, but I'm saying one-year wonder in the top 10. And so, you know, that that's another guy in this group who's shown top 10 potential. Then, of course, Daniil Medvedev, who made a Grand Slam final last year, who put together probably the best three-month run of any of the next-gen guys we've seen, any of those 96 or youngers, uh, when he won Cincinnati, when he made the finals of the Rogers Cup, when he made the finals of the U.S. Open, uh, when he made, I think, the finals of the City Open as well. He was just so good. And then he won Shanghai, too. He was so good for that three-month stretch. Uh, so I think it's safe to say, you know, you show that level of play, that that just doesn't happen. You can't be the, as good as Berrettini was. He never had a stretch like that last year. And so I do think Medvedev's another sustainable top 10 guy. And so, you know, to have three in this group already in the top 10 comfortably, the generation's here. You know, we see who the top guys are going to be. There will be some top guys, I should say, in this class. And yeah, that was inevitable, given that the big three eventually will age out. Mother Nature undefeated thus far. Um, But yeah, I, I think that shows the rise. And then, you know, now you start looking a little bit outside of that. And this is where you start to see the generation as a cohort, because there were five guys 25 and under in 2016. Team, 
he's still around. Tomich, I think we know where that went. Sock, same deal. Kyrgios, still around. Interesting case. And then Dimitrov, who is, I think, 24 in 2016, which is crazy to think about. Um, but, you know, he, uh, again, he's top 30. He's, sti- he's stuck around. In 2017, there are, s- there are six total. There's uh, Dominic Team plus Puy, Kyrgios, Sak, Zverev. In 2018, there are six total again. Uh, Zverev, Team, Puy, plus, uh, I believe, Kyrgios, Chung, and Edmund. And, you know, again, that that's not, that was right after Kyle Edmund Hyun Chung made the semifinals. Or I, I should say Luca Pui made the semifinals. Or was that Chung? I, no, Pui must have made the semifinals in 2019. I don't remember. The point being, I, I think it was 2019. But the point being, so they have six total in the top 30 right now. So five, five, six. 2019, we start to see that next-gen cohort come in. They get to eight total in the top 30 in 2019. You throw in the addition of guys like a Hachinov, like a Chorich, like a Medvedev, an Edmund, a Shapovalov, an Alex Dimenauer, who made even, you know, that's the younger end of this next-gen crew starts to emerge as well. And now we see a cohort forming. Now we see a group of guys asserting themselves at the top of the game. And what's most uh most comforting, most impressive, most legitimizing. I don't know what word I want to go for here, but what makes me feel best about this generation is that we went five, six, six, eight in 2019. We're now at 12 total in the top 30 in 2020. And again, it's the same guy. Tsitsipas Virev maintain their position. We see a guy like Medvedev maintain his position and move up. You throw in the addition of Berrettini, the continued presence of Karen Hachinov, of Denis Shapovalov, of Alex Dimenauer as well. Uh, but then you throw in guys like you know Christian Guerin, who has shown to be over the past two years a top 20 talent, certainly on clay courts. You could even argue he's a top 10 talent when healthy and fresh as well. Uh, you've seen him join the, the cohort. You've seen the rise of Felix Ogier Aliasim, a guy like Taylor Fritz make his breakthrough into the top 30, and he was another a top junior who was hovering around that top 50 range. And then a guy like Hubie Hercatch, who's another one you'd throw into this cohort, who's you know, certainly a top 30 talent, certainly has the sort of skills and the physica- uh, physicality to be that sort of player over the course of his career. So that jump, again, you know, you go from eight of the top 30 to 12 of the top 30, you're over a third of the top 30 or 24 and under. That makes a lot of sense. And it, it just shows this generation, it it's much less next gen. And I mean, this makes sense by date, but they are the present generation. And you keep looking at it. The top 50, six in 2016, nine in 2017, 11 in 2018 and 2019. And that's where you start to get worried because you know, there was some stagnation between 2016 and 2018 and, tw- you know, 2016 really in 2019. I think that's because the 94s through 90, you know, 94, 95s, the Puy generation, the Rubin generation, uh, just not as many breakthrough top players as some of the younger ones. You know, a guy like Demir Zumher, a guy like Laszlo Jur, who are guys I came across routinely uh, throughout this exercise in the rankings. They're top 50 players, but they're just not top 30 players. You know, they're not top end talents in the game. They're guys who will have long careers, but maybe not, you know, the defining careers of a generation. But the defining player, you know, but that being said, this cohort continues to do better and better throughout the game because they went from 11 total top 50 players in 2019 to 18 
right now. And, and, you know, the guys I didn't mention earlier, Chorich, who has fallen out of the top 30, but is still in the top 50. But then other guys like Casper Ruud, who was a former top junior, Riley Opelka, a former top junior, Mir Kasmenovic, a former world junior number one player in the world, uh, year-end number one, so I guess world tour, jun- uh, world junior tour champion, a guy like Yoshi Nishioka, who's just struggled with injuries, but been healthy and win healthy, I should say, been a top 50 player. And then a guy like Ugo Umbert, who won his first ATP title earlier this year. And again, the numbers get bigger and bigger. You know, top 100, they go from 19 total in 2016 to 30 total in 2020. In the top 200, it's the slow rise, 50 in 2016, 59, 59, 63 in 2019. As of right now, there are 66 total next-gen guys in the top 200. This generation's here. Like, I mean, look at the stats from this season. Of the 16 ATP 250 level or higher events played, nine of them have been won by next-gen ATP guys. You know, Rublev with two, Ugo Umber and Christian Guerin with two, Kasper Ruud, Stefano Tsitsipas, Opelka, Sabeth Vild, uh, all, you know, winners of the nine titles. And if you want to say that there deserves to be some criticism because the 500 titles, the Grand Slam titles, have gone to Nadal and Monfils and Djokovic, and, you know, the only ATP 500 title came from Christian Guerin, and it was a really weak draw in Rio that he won the five. You can have that criticism, and there is something, too. The next-gen guys haven't broken through yet at the major level, but you talk about at the slams recently. I mean, if, even if you date back to just last year, Tsitsipas semifinals at the Australian Open, Berrettini and Medvedev semifinals, finals respectively at the U.S. Open. Alex Zverev makes the semifinals at the Australian Open this year. You know, again, the last two year-end finals have been won by Alex Zverev and Stefano Tsitsipas. Zverev, Medvedev, Hachinov have all won Masters events. Even, you know, if you extend it to the 95s, you want to talk about young guys, still. Kyle Edmund and Yuri Vesely were the other winners of or winners of two of the other events this year. So you throw them in the group. It's 11 of the 16 have gone to guys 25, 26 or under. This generation's here to play. And really what the, what the question is, is which of them will rise to the top? And I think by the rankings metrics we've seen, Alex Virev and Stefano Tsitsipas have proven that they will be two at the top of the game. Now, do I think Daniil Medvedev's run last year uh, was was exceptional enough that he belongs in that grouping? Yes, I, I, I really do. I think it's too soon probably to say about FAA, but certainly he's got an incredible amount of talent. Yannick Sinner, an incredible amount of ta- talent. Denis Shapovalov, so young still and so talented as well. I mean, there are a lot of guys in this group that I think, if playing their best tennis, could win Grand Slams. But, you know, I think we have three top 10 guys for the next 10 years of this generation. We have our guys who are going to be at the top of the game. And it's at least three, right? That there are upwards of 12 guys jockeying for top 20 status, really, because you, you know, you're telling me an Andre Rublev's not going to have a streak like he did at the beginning of this season where he just gets hot and finds himself in the top 10 at some point of his career? Very much possible. Karen Hatchinov has already been in the top 10 during his career, and, you know, Borna Chorch has hovered right around the top 10. Of course, Berrettini as well. The state of this generation is significantly stronger. 
than I think previous generations. And, you know, there are, of course, guys you look back in the past at the ATP rankings, and were there guys who were at 24 near the top of the game, and you thought, okay, maybe this guy has a great future. Uh, sure there were. And you look at a guy like Anishi Kori again, or a Dimitrov, or, you know, a Rayanich who, you know, at 20, in 2016, 2017, when they were all young, found themselves near the top of the game. But I just think there's more staying power in this group. You know, again, what's a better top five? That grouping of Rayanich, Nishikori, uh, you throw De- David Goffin in there, you throw Grigor Dimitrov in there. I, I mean, that's their five. You know, you start to pull at number six, you probably say Pablo Carreno Busta's the sixth best of that cohort of that age generation. But, I mean, those six versus the generation of Zurev, Tsitsipas, Medvedev, and just, you know, FAA and Dimenauer, who I didn't mention, Shapovalov, what all of those younger guys, I think, are possible uh, of, uh, are capable of achieving. I just think this next-gen generation is going to put up some fantastic results. I think it's going to be really competitive amongst this group. Now, I'm still an Alex Zverev truther. I still believe he is the best of this group. You tell me you've ever seen someone at that size move around the baseline and hit the ball from the baseline the way he does as fluidly and with as much creativity and spin and finesse, uh, was, as well as the ability to just you know hit that ball Mach 5 uh, with being the size that he is. Uh, you know, You say you've seen that before. I'll tell you you're crazy particularly because I've been watching a lot of old tennis and I've still never seen someone move and just function on the tennis court the way Alex Zverev has. I've also, and I've mentioned this before, but in person heard the sound of the ball coming off of the rackets of Andre Rublev and of FAA, you know, on that forehand side. And it sounds like an F-17 taking off at, you know, a military base because it's just a, a cannon coming off of the strings. I think this next-gen group is going to accomplish some spectacular things, and I think we could easily see six, seven, eight, maybe even nine of them. And part of this is a product of just them coming in that uh, post-Big 3 era, but that Big 3 wiped out the primes of the generation that's older than them by extending their own primes. But I I think you really could see upwards of eight guys winning a slam. Now, again, if Alex Vierov wins the first one, do I think the other guys are in trouble? Yeah because I could see him getting confident and running off a streak. He's got that sort of arrogant personality where he would just think, please, you're worse than me. You're beneath me. And I think that could be significantly beneficial uh, if he continues to put in hard work to his long-term standing. But that's something we'll litigate later in the week. I just wanted to give you all, again, a bit of an update on where this next-gen cohort is at this point in 2020. And again, all of the rankings I used were, you know, from 2016 through now, right around that March 20th date, and took averages of all of the numbers: top 10, top 30, top 50, top 100, top 200. And we're going to have plenty more of this content coming on later in the week. Again, it's Next Gen Week here at Crack Rackets tomorrow. It's going to be me and the my uh, tennis. Uh, excuse me, it's going to be me and the My Tennis HQ guys uh, talking about which next-gen guys we think are capable of winning Grand Slams, putting names to that list, as well as what they need to improve to get to that point. And it's going to be a fun conversation, certainly. Uh, you know, Maxie and I will have some fun later in the week. I'm sure I'll get Jamie on. I'm sure I'll get Stokowiak on as well. We're going to have some fun with it because, you know, at our roots, we're a next-gen podcast, and so it's nice to get back to a topic I love so dearly. Maybe we'll even do a next-gen tier rankings 
uh, on the GSP later in the week as well. So be on the lookout for all of that. Uh, with that being said, I already plugged it, but go check out the GSP we did with ATP CEO Mark Miles because it's a really fascinating conversation that I think all of you guys will enjoy about uh, the inner nuances of running the business of professional tennis. Go check out our Cracked Interviews podcast as well, uh, especially if you're a college tennis fan of late. We've talked to Johnny Ross, Elliot Spaziri, Brianna Schvetz. We've got Alexa Graham coming up, I believe, tomorrow. And just we've had I've had a lot. We've got a lot of great ones in the queue. I don't want to give away all the interviews, but uh, it's going to be a very fun time to be. You know, it's been it's been great to get the chance, I should say, to get to talk with all of these players, hear their thoughts on the various various issues confronting tennis at various levels. So, again, be on the lookout for all of those like, rate, subscribe, review this podcast, the Cracked Interviews podcast, the Great Shot podcast, and of course our newest podcast as well, the Inside Out podcast, which takes a look at some of our favorite narratives from tennis's past. Season one talks about the best American male tennis players throughout the Open era. We assign a championship belt to the best player in any given year. We talk about their competition, provide context behind uh, that belt as well as, you know, talk about not just their impact on the court, but off the court in American tennis culture. I think it's a series you'll all enjoy, and I know our super producer, Daniel Westoff, uh, I mean, he killed it in the post-production stage. Uh, so, you know, all of our work, as always, means nothing uh, without the hard work that he and super producer Max Fliegner do, because as always, they have a f- of an editing job to do on this podcast. But, uh, you know, again, with that being said, I want to give a big thank you to our friends at Midwest Sports. Go to MidwestSports.com. Use that promo code CR15 to get 15% off your order. Free two-day shipping on orders over $75 as well as that free can of tennis balls. And remember, DraftKings free to bet day will be on May 14th. So go to DKNG.co slash Cracking Rackets to learn more about that. We could all use a little thrill in our life right now. Certainly, few things are as thrilling as DraftKings.com, so go check that out. And again, if you've missed any of our content, the website, CrackedRackets.com. You can find us Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, at Cracked Rackets. Be sure uh, to go check out our newest episode of Overserved on our YouTube channel. You want to message me directly, uh, feel free to, at GreatShotPod as well. But with that being said, for our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, our friends at Midwest Sports and DraftKings, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say, folks. That's the break, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.